Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. What a good Sunday it's been already, right? Yeah, what a great Sunday. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Good job, good job. A lot of work went into that. And thanks to Molly and to Tim for leading our choir during this season. Y'all are just doing a great job. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we can clap for that too. Great job. So yesterday morning, my wife and I uh, ran a 5K, um, which it was on the Corpus Christi Bayfront, which was great because I just hopped on one of those lime scooters for most of the race. Uh, nobody has to know. All right, y'all won't tell anybody. Online audience, y'all are going to keep that your secret. No, we, we ran. And of course, because we had this event coming up, we had practiced for it, right, a little bit. Um, we had gotten ready for it. If we would practice for something that is so insignificant, like a random 5K on a Sunday morning, it makes sense that we ought to be preparing and practicing for something as great as celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We should be practicing and getting ready. And already this morning, our choir has done a phenomenal job. Our worship team has done a phenomenal job. And we have been working together as a church to prepare our hearts for next week's celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we've been doing some things each week that are Easter practice. And we're going to do one more today. And so in just a moment, I'm actually going to ask that everybody would stand up and you'd kind of scatter around and find maybe a cluster of chairs that you could pray over. So you can kind of get up and move around and find like a group of chairs, maybe some that you could touch or just kind of put your hands on. So everybody, if you'd stand up, move around. You're not gonna have to stay there. So you could actually come and sit on the front row for a moment, like be there. We wouldn't ask you to stay. Online audience, I'd love to invite y'all to join us in this moment. And, and you can pray, maybe not over chairs, but over internet connections and monitors and TVs and everything that people will be using next week to participate in our Easter celebration. And so as you kind of move around, you've got maybe that group of chairs that you're going to pray over we are going to pray for those seats. And not for the seats specifically, but what the seats represent. Because next week, there are going to be people who are sitting in these seats. And they may have no idea of the story of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They may be coming to church for the first time to hear this incredible story. They may not have trusted their life to Jesus. And so we are going to pray for the people that are represented by these seats. And we're gonna take just a few moments now, just in some silent prayer, and then I will wrap up together as our last week of Easter practice. So church, let's pray together. Online audience, I invite you to do the same. God, we pray for this place. We pray for these seats. We pray for these online connections. God, we pray for what they represent, that they represent lives that can be touched and changed 
God, we pray for lives that can be added to the kingdom, lives that can make an impact in their workplaces and in their families and communities. God, we pray for each and every person that will celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus, at Coastal Oaks Church next week. God, even now, begin to prepare our hearts, soften our spirits. God, make us receptive to your spirit's presence in our lives. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would inhabit this place. God, that we would know that you were with us. God, that as we worship together next week, God, as we remember the great sacrifice, but also the great victory, that, God, we wouldn't be able to walk out of these doors the same as we came in, that our lives would be fundamentally altered. And that, God, because of the work that you do in and through us, this community, Rockport, this county, God, that your presence, your kingdom would advance and expand. God, we are expecting great things because you are a God who does great and amazing and wonderful things. So thank you for your son. Thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it is in his name that we pray together. Amen. All right. You may return to your seats. So one of the ways that we've been practicing for Easter as well over the last couple of weeks is we've been going through the gospel that Luke wrote for us. We've been in this series investigating Jesus because that's what Luke did. Luke was not an eyewitness to the events of the life of Jesus. In fact, Luke was an early member of the first followers of Jesus Christ. He was a part of the early church, and he realized that we needed to write down the events of the life of Jesus. He needed to create an orderly account that other people could read, that it could be shared with these first followers of Jesus. And so Luke goes about and he collects stories. He interviews people. He reads the accounts that have been written in order to write down the story of the life of Jesus. And he tells us right at the beginning of his gospel, he did it with one purpose in mind, and that is that those who read it could have certainty that Jesus is who he said he was, that we could have certainty. And so whether it was for the first followers, the first people who would read it, or those of us at Coastal Oaks Church today, right now, when we read Luke's account, Luke wants us to have assurance. Luke wants us to have certainty that we can be confident in the message of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. And so as Luke is writing this gospel, he's going and collecting these stories, he is uh, careful to present the story to remind people that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises. But he also wants the early believers to understand that the way that the church follows Jesus, that their life, the way that they've organized and decided that this is how we're going to follow Jesus, that all of those things have root in who Jesus was. And so things like welcoming outsiders, Luke shows all the times that Jesus did that throughout his life. So that way in the early church, when they see our community is made up of people who aren't exactly like us, there are people worshiping who aren't the same as us. They could look back at the life of Jesus and say, but Jesus has been doing that the whole time. That Luke is telling us the story of Jesus so that we can better understand that's how we're supposed to live our life today as followers of Jesus. And one of those distinguishing things that Luke wants to make very clear in his gospel, one of those distinguishing characteristics of the early church was their generosity. 
Luke writes in the book of Acts, uh, his, his uh, message of the earliest church, Luke writes about the earliest Christ followers, and he says this, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and there was not a needy person among them. This was rare in that day and age. To give away your possessions, to be generous towards others, to practice philanthropy, that wasn't something that was done in those times. You may give to somebody else with the hope of a reward, but that was not how the early church practiced generosity. They practiced generosity because they felt compelled that this was the example that Jesus had set for them. And so they were generous to the point that they would sell things and give the money to the church. And they wanted to ensure that there were no needy among them. This was seen in story after story from Jesus's life. Jesus was generous He was generous with his time. He was generous with his attention. He was generous when he offered healing to others. And he was generous when he received those who wouldn't be welcomed everywhere else. Jesus was generous. And in turn, Jesus' generosity often inspired generosity in others. We know the story about the crowded uh, and and hungry group of people that, that gathered together on a hillside to listen to Jesus teach, and they realize they have no food. And what happens? But a young boy steps forward and offers up his lunch so that that can be used to help feed the people who are gathered there that day. Generosity inspired generosity. Luke chapter 8, the very beginning of it, Luke tells us about the women who were followers of Jesus. And one of the things that he notes is that they actually supported Jesus and his ministry work out of their own means. Generosity inspired generosity. Generosity and giving, sacrificing what we have on behalf of others was a key distinguishing part of the early church and it found its root in the life of of Jesus. Now, when we look at the last week of Jesus's life, when we look at what begins on Palm Sunday and carries all the way to the crucifixion, what we see is that Luke presents multiple accounts of generosity during this week of Jesus's life. And today, that's what we're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about generosity and giving up of our time, our talent, but also our treasure and our possessions. Now, this can be an uncomfortable topic. In fact, some people might say, this is the one reason I don't wanna go to church, and maybe today is the first time you're here, the first time you're watching online, and you thought, I knew it. They're gonna talk about money. That's what I expect at church. And you're right, we are going to talk about money. But we're not gonna talk about money just to talk about money. Because you see, the invitation to be generous is a much bigger invitation. It is the invitation to grow our faith, to trust God with every aspect of our life, not just the easy ones, but even the things that we hold the most dear. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter, and it's after the the Last Supper. It's, It's right before Jesus is about to be arrested, and Jesus tells Peter that he's prayed for him. But he doesn't just say he's prayed in any general way. No, he says this in Luke 22, I have prayed that your faith may not fail. 
that your faith may not fail. This is one of those verses that I return to over and over again. And I remember that Jesus wants my faith to be true and genuine and that even in the hard moments that it wouldn't fail. And I pray that, that my faith would not fail. And so perhaps generosity is one of those things that it is maybe an area where for some of us, we need just a little bit of stretching. We need our faith to grow. And this can be one more example of trust and devotion that we have to Jesus. So we're going to look at a few of the generosity stories that occur in the last week of Jesus's life. And the first one is in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29. This is what Luke records. He says that when Jesus drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought that colt to Jesus. An interesting story, right? We know the story of the triumphant entry. We know the story of of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and everybody waving palm fronds and yelling Hosanna, but it begins right here as they are nearing Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two of his disciples on a mission. He tells them, I want you to go into that town and you are going to find a colt, but not just any colt. You are going to find one that has never had anybody sit on it before. That is, you're going to find one that has never done any ordinary work. That this is a new, unbroken cult. In the Old Testament, the the custom called for using these types of animals for sacred purposes. When there was some sacred use for an animal, the uh, Old Testament always called for using an unblemished or an unbroken or an unused animal. Animal, Like in Numbers, it says, tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. That is, find one who has never done any ordinary work for this sacred purpose. Jesus says, go and find this cult, one that nobody has ever sat on before and bring it to me. But he anticipates that the owners are going to have some reservations about this which makes sense because animals like this were valuable, right? They, they had use. People didn't just own a colt as a pet. They owned it because it was going to do some work for them, and especially one that was young, had a long future ahead of them. So Jesus is saying, I want you to go and just find one and untie it and bring it with you. You can imagine that the owners may not have been on board with that right at first, right? I mean, if you walked out into the parking lot today and there was somebody standing at your car and saying, hey, I need your keys for a while, you would be hesitant about that at first, right? I mean, my daughter's about to drive and I don't even like the idea of her taking my car and like, I know her, let alone somebody I've never met before in my life. They go to untie the colt and what happens? The owners rightly say, um, excuse me, why are you doing this? Can uh, Just tell us a little bit more about what's going on here. But Jesus gives the disciples the words that they're supposed to say. And what is it? The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Everything changes when they say those words. When they untie the colt, the people aren't sure, but then they tell them the Lord, that is Jesus, 
has need of it. I mean, how can you say no to that, right? Jesus would have been well known by this point. Him coming to Jerusalem, he probably had a crowd following. There would have been quite a commotion. And so when they say, Jesus needs this, well, how can you say no? It's almost like you can picture the owners are gripping the reins really tightly until the disciples tell them the Lord has need of it. Jesus needs this. And their grip just loosens. I mean, sometimes for me, I want to hold on to the things that I own. I don't want to give them up. I don't want to practice generosity. But if I knew that Jesus was coming up to me and saying, but I have need of it, wouldn't your grip start to loosen? Wouldn't you start to, to, to lessen up that tight grip that you have on your possessions if you knew the Lord had need of it? Which is why the way I get out of being generous oftentimes is to wonder, does the Lord really need what I have? I mean, what do I have to give God? I mean, it's so small. There's all of these other people with more. Does God really need the small little bit that I could offer to him? On March 28, 1990, Michael Jordan scored more points than he had ever scored in his entire career and more points than he would ever score again after that. Against the Cleveland Cavaliers, Michael Jordan scored 69 points in an overtime win. He was the scoring champion that season, already having a prolific year. But this was the greatest achievement in his entire career when it comes to scoring. 69 points in one game. That is remarkable. He would never do it up to that point, never do it again. The highest scoring game of his entire career, 69 points in this overtime win against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, after the game, the reporters were kind of wandering around in the locker room, and they found a teammate of Michael Jordan, Stacy King, who was a rookie. Stacy King scored one point in that game, but Stacy King told the reporters, he said he would always remember this as the night that he and Michael Jordan scored 70 points. Stacey King scored one point, a free throw. He missed all four of his shots in the game. Of course he'd like to remember it as the game that he and Michael Jordan scored 70 points. But you see, the story isn't quite that simple because the game went to overtime. Michael Jordan scored eight of his points in overtime. Had the game finished in regulation, he would have only scored 61 points. And I say only. I mean, obviously, that's still an impressive number. But it wouldn't have been his career high. In fact, it wouldn't have even been his highest scoring out point at that point in his career. He had already scored 63 against the Boston Celtics in a playoff game. No one would have remembered that game as anything more than one more impressive performance in an impressive career. But instead, this is remembered as his career high, a singularly impressive performance. And it happened because of Stacy King. Stacy King made a free throw, which was necessary to ensure that the game went to overtime. Without Stacy King's lone single point, the Bulls wouldn't have scored as many points as the Cavaliers. The game doesn't go to overtime. Michael Jordan doesn't set his career high. Stacey King may not have done much, and he would be foolish to claim credit for Michael Jordan's performance, but his point still played a part in the larger story. See, friends, your resources 
Your money, your gifts, everything that you have can play a part in God's larger story. Perhaps you hold on tightly because it seems impossible that God really needs what it is you have. It's so small. It's just one point. It's just this unbroken cult. It's not really that much. What could God really have need of it? So the question for us is, are we willing to trust Jesus at his word? Can we really loosen our grip and put our faith in him? Fast forward a couple of days during the week, and Jesus notices some people who are giving their offerings. In Luke chapter 21, it's recorded, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance Excuse me, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is one of those stories that's kind of like a gulp, swallow hard moment for me because it begins by saying that Jesus is watching them put in their offerings. Ooh, can you imagine that? How might that change everything right there if we considered that Jesus notices, that Jesus is watching as we give? That changes the whole dynamics of everything, doesn't it? But Jesus says, or Luke tells us that Jesus notices that there are two groups of people. One of the groups, they say, are the rich people, which give out of abundance. That is, once they were done giving, they had plenty left to live on. And that wouldn't have been that hard to, uh, to notice because their clothing would have already signified that they were wealthier. And so it would have been easy to see. But even if you didn't see it, you probably would have heard their offering, like the coins as they were hitting in the offering box. It would have just been very apparent that they had a lot of resources to give. And notice, Jesus isn't making an admonishment to them. He's not, he's not saying that they've done something wrong. It, it's great that they are giving to this offering. That's fantastic. But Jesus calls attention to the other giver in the story, which is a widow who gives two small copper coins. Now, as a widow, she wouldn't have had any financial support. Her husband was no longer with her to provide for her needs. As, as a woman and, and a widow in their times, she would have had few economic op opportunities. Like, there weren't a lot of opportunities for jobs or other employment for a widow. And so she would have lived on a very meager existence. In fact, her coin, the two copper coins that she gives, were the least valuable in circulation at that time. We have a picture of who this woman is and yet Jesus says the most remarkable thing, doesn't he? He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. She put in more than all of them. This is one of those moments when our saying, I take the Bible literally, really gets put to the test, doesn't it? Because we read a verse like that, Jesus saying she put in more than all of them, and it's really easy to want to spiritualize that away, right? And just say, oh, no, no, Jesus is just talking about symbolically. We, we don't want to think of that as literal, and we don't want to notice what Jesus is actually revealing to us, that kingdom economics are different than our economics, that the way that God looks at resources is actually different than how we look at resources. That his measurements are not our measurements. 
You see, the rich people giving this abundance should, of course, have been more than this widow. But Jesus makes it clear that that's not the case. That the way God views this situation is different than how we view the situation. And her gift was more than the others. Perhaps when you go on a trip, you face the problem that, that I've faced before, which is I've got a, this size of suitcase, but I have this size of things that I'm trying to fit on it. Is there anybody out there who's had that moment? Like you put everything out on the bed and then your suitcase is there and then you silently pray that the laws of physics won't apply to what you're about to do, right? You're like, okay, I've seen the Jetsons. I think I can make this work. I know what's gonna happen. And so you put everything in and the side of it is like sticking up. There's no way it's gonna shut. And what do you do in that moment? You sit on the suitcase, right? Anybody? Amen. Yeah, you know. You sit on it, and, and you watch as the teeth on the zipper hold on for dear life until you realize that there's this marvelous invention, a second zipper that expands the suitcase just enough, right? Oh, my goodness. It's like the world has just opened up. There's new possibilities, new opportunities for you. You don't have to take anything out. In fact, everything fits perfectly in the suitcase. That's a great moment when you realize that the suitcase can expand, that the way you looked at it before is not the way that it actually was. Sometimes I think that may be how we approach giving, that the very thought of having to give something feels like you're going to have to leave something out of the suitcase. No, 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 but I have all this stuff and I want to take it all with me, and that means I'm going to have to leave something out. But perhaps... Kingdom economics don't work the way that we think that they work. And perhaps only when you give, only when you take that step of faith and obedience, does the world begin to expand. And that there are actually some opportunities, some things that you would never have known about until you took that step of faith in that moment. And in fact, when we choose to trust God with our resources, to trust that his ways are better, that we actually can find that God does more with less. As our faith increases, we can begin to see that there is a grander world of which we would never have known. Now, fast forward further in the story. Jesus has now been crucified. Jesus has died. Jesus has already shared his last supper. He's already been arrested. He's already been put on trial. He's already been beaten and had to carry a cross down the long road to Calvary. And then he is hung on this cross in the most excruciating death imaginable. The Romans had perfected the art of torture. They knew exactly how to extract as much pain as possible. And they saved this kind of death for traitors, enemies of the state. And that's the kind of death that Jesus is subjected to on the cross. But after Jesus has died, we find this small passage in Luke 23. It says that there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one ever had yet been laid. Luke writes his gospel in such a way that he includes lots of details. 
He includes names. He includes places. He situates the story in history because Luke wanted his readers to know that Jesus wasn't just some myth. He wasn't a made-up character. He was somebody who actually lived, and he lived in real times, in real places. And if you didn't believe Luke, guess what? You could go and ask the people that he named. You could go and find them, and it's no different in this circumstance. It would have been very easy for Luke to have just written, Jesus died, they placed him in a tomb. But that's not what Luke writes at all. Luke names somebody. He names Joseph, and he says, this is where you could find him in the Jewish town of Arimathea. And in case there were maybe multiple Josephs in Arimathea, he notes that this man was a member of the council. Luke makes it so that anybody who had doubts about this story, Luke is basically saying, Go find Joseph and ask him yourself. That's what I did. He told me the story. You can go and ask him. Find him to give you the details. And the details here are crucial and important. Joseph was a member of the council. That is the group of religious leaders. Ultimately, the group of religious leaders who made the decision that Jesus needed to die. They were so challenged by Jesus. They so disagreed with him that they decided it would be better for him to be put to death. This council makes the decision, but we find out that Joseph didn't agree with that decision. And after Jesus has been subjected to torture, humiliation, and Jesus is now dead, Joseph steps forward and asks for Jesus' body so that he could place it in his tomb. What does Joseph have to gain in this moment? And Jesus is dead, and for all intents and purposes, so is his movement. He might have been a fascinating rabbi. He might have done some amazing things, but he's dead. What does Joseph have to gain? All he's doing is calling attention to the fact that he disagreed with everybody. This act of generosity, this act of compassion, just singles him out from all of the people who are going to maintain power, and yet... Joseph feels compelled to practice generosity. And what a courageous gift he chooses to make. He steps forward. He asks Pilate for the body, and then he lays him in a tomb. But did you notice what kind of tomb? It was a new tomb. See, in their day and time, it wouldn't have been uncommon to carve out basically a cave and to have then little carvings where they could place bodies as they, they decomposed in these tombs. So you would have had multiple bodies oftentimes in a tomb. Now, let's say that Jesus had been placed in one of those tombs and then they came back a few days later and Jesus was missing. It would have been easy to say, oh, you just lost count, right? Like, no, 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 you thought there were nine bodies in here. It turns out there's eight. It would have been easy to say, oh, Jesus didn't really resurrect. You just don't know where you put him. You don't know how to count. There would have been ways to disregard this miracle, but not if Jesus is placed in a tomb by himself. Joseph makes this courageous gift. He singles himself out amongst all of the people that he would have spent time with to practice generosity, and his act of generosity is one of the greatest pieces of evidence that we have that we can be certain about the resurrection because Jesus was temporarily laid in a new tomb. And a few days later when they came back to prepare the body and Jesus is missing, It is beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can be certain that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that moment happens because Joseph chooses to be generous. 
I imagine that while he was preparing for Passover that week, as he was gathering supplies, as he was making plans with his family, as he was doing all of the normal activities that would have been done during Passover week, Joseph never thought that he would be part of the grand story. And yet, his name is now repeated 2,000 years later every single year because he donated the tomb that would temporarily house Jesus What might happen today if you chose an act of courageous faith and generosity? If you chose to be obedient in trusting God, even with your resources, even with your money, even with your finances, how much might God be able to do through your gift? I want you to imagine a ladder for a moment. Just imagine a ladder with several steps going up it. And and this ladder is a ladder of generosity. And each step represents a different position of generosity and giving. The first step on this generosity ladder would, would be just to give to the church anytime, any amount. It's just, just a sporadic gift. That would be the first step, to give just some gift at some point, any amount, doesn't matter. That's the first step on the generosity ladder. The second step would be to give occasionally, maybe from time to time. Maybe it happens whenever you just have a few extra resources or you've got cash in your pocket and you decide today is the day. If the first step is to give very sporadically, then the second step up would just be to give from time to time. The next step up would be to give regularly, to actually have some pattern, some habit to your giving, while the step above that would be to give regularly, but to choose to give in proportion to what you earn. We call that the tithe in the church, and and a goal that we tend to set is 10% of our income. That is, for every dollar I make, I'm going to take 10 cents of that, and I'm going to set that aside, and I'm going to give it to the church for the work of ministry that happens through this body of believers, to give regularly and to give in proportion to what you earn. And for many, we might think that's the top of the ladder, but there's another step even beyond that, which is the step of extravagant giving to give over and above your tithe, to give over and above. Maybe it's a higher percentage. Maybe it's just, again, when you are blessed with additional resources, you give additionally. But this ladder of generosity represents different steps that we can take on the journey of generosity. And I don't know where you're at, but in a moment, we are going to sing a song together. It's going to be a moment of response. And one of the things that you could do during this time is to take an honest assessment of where you are at currently and then decide, does that match the trust that you declare you have in God? Does your giving, does your practice of generosity match the trust that you have in God? I mean, it's one thing for all of us to say, I believe in God, I trust God, but it's another thing when we have to put that to the test. Remember, Jesus prayed for Peter the same thing that we should be praying for ourselves, that we should pray for one another, that our faith wouldn't fail. And for many of us, this is that moment. This is the challenge when our faith is truly put to the test when it comes to generosity. So in a moment, when we stand together, when we sing, when we, when we have a moment of response, one of the things that we can do is to take an honest assessment. Perhaps today is the day you can take that first step on the ladder.
to give some amount, any amount, doesn't matter. Today could be that first step. And maybe for others, it's a time to take another step up the ladder, to trust God more and more. But for all of us, we can grapple with this invitation for faith, the invitation to trust God, even in the difficult moments of life. 